Well, good morning. I thought I'd do just a quick, short, little um, piece where I would talk about something from yesterday. So, based on all this research, I've come to a pretty simple conclusion that, um, well, long story short, uh, there needs to be uh, a little more emphasis on teaching sufficiency. You need to teach people what they need to know to get out of this. So, long story short, I'm going to steal from a couple of places and um, just share my insights from uh, decades here. So, long story short, I came to Buddhism because I had to. Trying to cure complex uh, trauma, uh, rare inflammatory disease, and uh, uh, allergies uh, as severe as an autoimmune disease. So, for me, uh, Buddhism, meditation and mindfulness at the time, allowed me to keep these things in check because allergies are connected to cortisol and stress, and stress is connected to the trauma, the trauma is connected to the auto-inflammatory disease. So, literally, pretty much horrible. Fast forward, though, uh, I had spent 20, 30 years studying this myself, uh, didn't realize how few uh, were getting these same insights. So, Fast forward to yesterday, and I think I have a protocol for everyone. So first, I'm going to steal from JFK. And I'm going to say that first, you need to understand that uh, you need to accept whatever comes, good or bad, as ordered, accepted. This is Carl Friston's free energy, right? Uh, free energy is the anxiety that's produced by our mind, which is a predictive engine. When you're idle... You can produce anxiety. You can produce boredom. Don't let that get in your way. More so. That predictive engine is there to give you an understanding of what to expect. Also to help you plan on how to manage outcomes. But more importantly, if you don't accept the outcome as delivered by the universe, reality, then you'll have something that Fristin calls surprise. That can cause trauma. Trauma is just... Um, attachment or um, unaccepted um, effects of a cause, right? So our job is to make choices. Choices based on, I've talked about this before, the entirety of Buddhism could be summarized in Sati or Sato Sampajano, this idea of to remember the marks of existence, right? Nothing is permanent. Uh, the ego or the self is upakara. Uh, it's nascent. It's something that uh, we use to navigate our conventional world. Uh, but once we're done with it, we must lay it aside. And I'll get to what I mean by that. Satisampajano. To remember these truths and to apply them. Sampajano. With clear comprehension to all of life's daily activities. So... The cushion is the beginner work. Right? If the world is so noisy that you can't shut it off, calm your mind and be focused and present. But once you begin to develop that skill, this is upakara and upekka. Um, upeksha. I'm losing them all, but uh, skill, skillful means. 
<laughs> oh my god, they're all so close, right? Upakara, Upeka, uh, which is equanimity, Upakara, which is um, something that's close at hand. And then the other U word, Upeka, I can't remember, but skillful means. It's important because there is no two um, alike, because everyone is individual. That being said, what I've come to realize is because there's so many people that are individual, that's why there's so many different practices. There's different types of meditations, there's different types of asanas, which is just your physical movement or your position. And then there's mantras. I've always been a fan of mantra. Um, again, I'm biased. I'm a yoga karan. I guess uh, you call me essentially a Tibetan, right? A tantric practitioner, a Vajrayana. So definitely into the the chanting and the stuff like that. I've always found it very powerful. Now, when you look at a mantra, when done right, if taught properly, unlike I spent uh, quite a bit of time in the Pure Land, right? And they will teach the um, um, the mantra of Namo Amitofo, Namo Amitofo, which goes back to the Sanskrit, Namo Honor, Namo Amitabha, and Namo Amiteus. This is the Buddha of infinite life and infinite light. Amitofo, Amitofo. That's what you repeat. But they actually go so far as to try to, you know, beat their previous day's chanting number and worse yet, never explain what the mantras are for. So the mantra is to tie up the mind because you're listening, you're hearing, you're speaking, you're thinking, you're being. It allows you to see past this conventional world and your, your manas, your conventional mind, to see to, to the truth of uh, existence and the nature of reality, the nature of self. Right? So the mantra ties up your voice and your hearing, right? And your, your, um, the vibrations. In fact, that's what they're currently studying. I kind of made fun of that recently that they're studying ultrasound to vibrate the brain, uh, hoping to bring about enlightenment. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's such hubris. It really is. It's really quite funny. Um, so with that, I've realized there isn't a lot of practice. Um, I have the manas, uh, Everyone has issues with this. I've seen recently where someone was talking about the Tibetan, the Om Mani Padme Om, um, and they even <laughs> said some ridiculous things about it. But there's the problem, Om uh, Mani Padme Om, and I know I say it a little bit weird, and, and that's just the way I've always done it, self-taught uh, early on. So um, Padme Mani Om, it really... The idea is the jewel and the lotus are the lotus jewel. The same idea is the beauty of the teachings, the beauty of the truth. Uh, but again, does that really teach it, right? Or any of the other, like the wisdom mantra, does it really teach the tenets of Buddhism, right? Or is it simply uh, a mantra, like om, ah, om. Is it healing and uh, fixative and a focus? But does it teach? Does it um, inform? Does it enlighten? Not in the grave meaning, but to, uh, to provide practical wisdom, phrenesis, as is often translated uh, to mindfulness, but uh, no, anumana is the Sanskrit word. Uh, it means uh, acquired or practical knowledge, exactly the same as phrenesis, which is Greek if you want to look it up. Um, anumana, right? So this is using manas, your mind, uh, to, to suss this stuff out 
So based on that, I realized there is a need of both the teaching and the practice. Okay, And it's not sitting on a pillow. So here's the practice, and you can give it a try yourself. So I've always recommended the Heart Sutra. And I chuckled yesterday because the main criticism is, oh, it's not written in Sanskrit. It's likely a Chinese uh, sutra. So I stop, and here I am, I've mentioned this, translating uh, Zen Sutra, the Dhyana Sutra, number 620. And uh, it hasn't been translated yet from the Chinese, but we know 100% it comes from the Sanskrit, but just like many other hundreds even, uh, sutras that are now only existent in the Chinese, many haven't even been translated to English, which is why I'm trying to translate this one. Again, this sutra is the, um, the cure for the Zen sickness. So I come to realize when we have hundreds of sutras that only now exist in Chinese, why are we considering the Heart Sutra to be problematic because it, well, we don't know for sure whether it was actually Sanskrit. Um, You know, it might have been written in Chinese. So if you do a little study in history, you'll realize that the time when this was likely written it, it may have been written in China, but you know what the real truth is? It, it was just as likely uh, that it was, yes, maybe written in China, but more likely translated um, back in India and brought back. So there's maybe where the confusion came in. It was actually in, um, they weren't able to bring back an original copy of Sanskrit, so they translated it in India. Um, but if that were the case, it would be likely that they actually did bring it back in Sanskrit because there were periods when they were um, Sanskrit scholars in China, and a lot of the scholarship was being done in uh, Sanskrit. Then there were times that uh, the scholars and the teachers uh, were Tibetan, and uh, Sanskrit uh, and Tibetan are very close because uh, they developed their written language uh, for um, the dissemination of, of the Dharma. So I find it funny, yet another example of a... a, a I don't want to say just a mistake in history, right? Same as someone was talking about how important lineage is in Zen. Well, they haven't done a lot of reading. When I tried to explain that uh, Zen in Japan or Buddhism in Japan is very uniquely Japanese. It is such a mix. It's plain and simple. Shinto and the, the Buddhism got mixed together. But it's no different than Chinese in a sense when, the, when Confucianism and... Well, geez, arguably the hundred schools of philosophy got mixed all up with Buddhism and back and forth. But to think that this lineage goes all the way back to the Buddha when it was localized how many times before it even arrived in Japan. So lineage is delusional. It's a call to authority that fails in this case when the Buddha himself uh, warned us that we needed to be wary of teachers. We needed to learn ourselves first before we'd ever consider teach and that there was room for logic and reason in his teaching. So there we had to apply critical thinking to whatever we were being taught by whoever, even if they held lineage and dharma transmission. So here we go. What is the entirety of Buddhism and what can I use to practice both uh, as a mantra, as a meditation, as a mindfulness, uh, as an empowerment Uh, as well as a teaching tool. So I offer the great spell, 
the mantra of the Heart Sutra. I highly recommend that you read the Heart Sutra. I'm going to save us some time and I won't read it. I have read it in previous um, podcasts. Uh, so I recommend maybe an opening with Om Aham. With a deep breath before the Om. And then a deep exhale after the Om. Prepares you, gets you in the mind of a mantra. So the great spell, the mantra of the Heart Sutra is Gatte, Gatte, Paragatte, Parasamgatte, Bodhiswaha. And translated, it's beautiful. You got Gatte, Gatte, away, away. Two aways. Why? Well, because away. You need to understand that the solution to our suffering, to our dukkha, our dissatisfaction, our disenchantment with the world and reality and ourselves is to, to understand that you must get away. And away is an understanding, right? So away, away. Here's the jhanas. The first jhana is, is come away from your attachment to your body, your somatic, somatic experience. And in the second jhana, the gatte, the come away, is to come away from your thoughts, your feelings, your vedana, and stop that citta, vritti, naroda, that uh, flapping, the fluctuations of the mental, um, the mental constructs, right? And to the third, the third is paragatte, right? Para para we've seen this come down in, in Latin even, but para to be beside. Paragate. So to be beside these these uh, these troubles, right? The third jhana is a glimpse of equanimity. To understand that it is possible to no longer attach to the self and to permanence and to understand that you're just part of a system greater than yourself. That's the third jhana. And so parasamgate actually is a Sanskrit word that means away to the other shore, this idea that you're away from it. There's your fourth jhana. Your fourth jhana, parasamgate, is being able to regularly be resonant in equanimity and compose, uh, um, you know, to live uh, undenatured, even arguably much less bothered by... Uh, the colored lights that hypnotize, sparkle someone else's eyes. So, and Bodhi, Bodhi is wisdom. And Swaha is the, uh, the, the Tibetan way of pronouncing Swaha, uh, which is a, a Sanskrit word which essentially is uh, woohoo, awesome, right? Uh, success or uh, celebration or ultimate. So, uh, Om Aham. So that's come away, come away from your attachments to this world, away from your mental constructs, the mental fluctuations that torment you day and day. Come away to a place where you see that you're part of a system greater than yourselves. Come away and be resident in this truth that you're just part of a system greater than yourself and getting out of your own way is the solution to our suffering and our dissatisfaction, our disenchantment. To enlightenment, bodhi. <laughs> that is the goal. It's a journey, not a destination. And you might have to make that trek more than once. But you can use this as both a teaching and a mantra and an empowerment. It's 
Aham that teaches you almost like the Vedana, the Om um, Tat Sat. I considered that, that you are complete enough. You're already complete. I am that. But the Om Aham is the entirety of the universe. It's the healing sounds. I added it at the beginning just for you to get focused. And then, gate, gate, away, away, come away from your mind, come away from your body, paragate, be um, free, understand the possibility of freedom, parasamgate, be resonant in this freedom, bodhi, with an eventual hope to enlightenment, maybe even to step off of this delusion, the samsara, swaha, wouldn't that be lovely? So I highly recommend the Heart Sutra uh, in its entirety, uh, Buddhism, uh, the teachings, uh, the healing. That's why it's called the Great Spell. It's, uh, it's the mantra that, uh, that teaches and heals, uh, inspires and enlightens. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisattva. So on that, I wish you the best. Sadhu, which uh, means both honored one and um, good or great. Not that different from San in Japan or Shan uh, in, um, in China. Uh, can be honored one, teacher, revered one, guru, mountain, great, special. Remember, that's what you are. One in a trillion, one in a hundred trillion chance to have the opportunity to embrace this existence, right? So remember that, that uh, the secret uh, is embracing your fate, right? Amor fati. Love your fate. Love your faith. Because the eternal recurrence teaches that we're dissatisfied with this existence, not because it is so awful, but because we are so awful. Right? Our life is a slog, not because it is so difficult, but because we treat it as such. If we were to stop labeling things as good and bad, we might start to see the good in the bad and the bad in the good. And that balance, as Kipling said, when you treat triumph and disaster as the imposters they are, yours is the world and everything that's in it.